Christ is for Everyone, a podcast about celebrating the goodness of life and the love of Christ. Paul says in 1 Corinthians, 
So we see that not only did he have momentary appearances, not only was Christ, you know, it was foggy outside and they saw somebody that looked like Christ walking along the mountainside or something. He sat down at the table with them and he ate with them, proving that he's not a ghost, right? He didn't pick up a piece of fish and he put it in his mouth and it just fell through his, you know, his transparent Casper body or anything like that. He sat and he ate with them and he drank wine and he taught them. Uh, so the, the disciples were witnesses to the resurrection of Christ. And then finally we entered what's called the third article of the Nicene Creed, where we talk about the Holy Spirit. And we talked last week about how the Holy Spirit is God, together with the Father and the Son. And with the recognition of the divinity of the Holy Spirit, now we have a genuine doctrine of the Trinity. Alright, Trinity means triunity, a threeness. There is one God, and yet this God eternally subsists in Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Now, as I said to you last week, I'll say to you again this time, how can you have three persons and one God? I don't know, right? Just like, for example, um, you know, we see here we have a piano. You look at the piano and you can see it, but you cannot see the whole piano at once. Where I'm standing, I can hardly see any of the keys. I cannot see what's under the piano. I can't see what's on the other side. I can't see what the strings look like. Maybe all the strings are cut. I wouldn't be able to tell from here, right? And when I go to the front of the piano, I can see what the keys are like. I still can't see the strings. When I open the, the hood of the, the hood, <laughs> I don't know what you would call it. When I open the top of the piano, I can see the strings. And I can look in and I can see that the strings are intact, but I can't see the keys. Right? We're stuck looking at things from a certain perspective. We cannot see the whole at once. You can see the front of me, but you can't see the back of me. You can see the outside of me, but you can't see the inside of me. It'd be nice if we could see the inside of people because we could say, oh, look at that. You know, you've got a spot on your lung, you better go to the doctor to check it out. But we can't see that. We're stuck seeing the outside only, right? So also with God, we cannot see all of God at once. If we can't even see the piano all at once, how much less can we see God all at once? What we can't see of God is this. We know that there's one God who is the source of everything and the creator of everything that exists. And yet when Christ comes into the world, he talks about Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. We know that Christ is God, and yet he talks about himself as if somehow... Within God, there is this distinction between Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. So, we are stuck with a mystery. And like uh, St. Augustine said, if you can understand it, it's not the Trinity. So, this is just the nature of things. Uh, if, you have a, if you think that you have a grasp of the doctrine of the Trinity, St. Augustine would say, you, you're proving thereby that you don't have a grasp of it, because it's a mystery. We cannot understand it altogether. But in any case, we talked about the divinity of the Holy Spirit. We talked about the role of the Holy Spirit in salvation. We said that the Holy Spirit um, accomplishes this unity between the human being and God, which was intended by God from the beginning. God, you know, if you recall, in Genesis chapter 3, I referenced this passage a couple of times, Adam and Eve are in the garden, and there's this very interesting passage in verse 8 where it says that God was walking in the garden in the cool of the day. Now, I don't know what that means. Does God have a body? You know, traditionally, uh, Christian theology says that God is a spirit. It doesn't have a body like us. How was he walking in the garden in the cool of the day? I don't know. But the idea, nevertheless, seems to be this. God intended from the beginning to live in close quarters with human beings. All right? Just like, for example, uh, in the normal case, um, if two people have a child, they live with the child and they don't send the child away with somebody else. So also, God created human beings and he, it seems, wishes to live in close quarters with human beings. He wishes to live in friendship with them. And yet, because of sin, this friendship was ruptured, and the human beings were cast out of the garden, and there was this introduced, this distance between God and human beings. 
And so long as there is sin in a human person, there's going to be a distance between that person and God. But what God wants is to overcome the distance uh, and to come back into close quarters with human beings. And the Holy Spirit, the promise that somehow in some mysterious way, God himself will live inside of you. This is something that was promised in the Old Testament. Uh, and that promise was fulfilled after the ascension of Christ, when he poured out the Holy Spirit on the apostles at Pentecost. And then from then moment forward, everybody who believed in the gospel and was baptized uh, also received the Holy Spirit. So we see that the role of the Holy Spirit in the process of salvation is this. The Holy Spirit um, is, we could say, God come close to the human being once more. Right? Just like God intended to from the beginning, now after Christ has, been ascend has ascended into heaven, uh, once more, God is coming very close to the human being and living, even, we can say, inside the human being, somehow, in some mysterious way. And then we talked about the effects of the Holy Spirit. Just like, for example, being out in the sun will leave effects on your body. You'll look tanner. Your, you know, your skin will be red or browner. Uh, or if you were to live in a cave or work in a coal mine, that will leave effects on your body. So also, close proximity with God doesn't leave you unchanged. It affects you. And we talked about the fruit of the Spirit as the concrete effects that are produced when the Holy, the Holy Spirit lives in a person. Gentleness, kindness, righteousness, and so on. Uh, and I, we pointed to the example of Stephen, the proto-martyr, at his uh, stoning. He prays for the people who are stoning him to death. Uh, and the scriptures say that he was full of the Holy Spirit. So if you want to know what a person looks like who is full of the Holy Spirit, you can see Stephen praying for the people who are stoning him to death and saying, God, don't hold this sin against them. Now today, we are going to talk about um, the last thing that the Creed says about the Holy Spirit. It says, uh, who together with the Father and the and who together with the Father and the Son is worshipped and glorified. What next? Who spake by the prophets? So we're going to talk today about uh, how it is that the Holy Spirit spoke by the prophets. And more generally, we're going to talk about the role of Scripture in the Church. What is the role of Scripture in the Church? Uh, I'm excited about this topic because this was the topic of my dissertation. So this is something that I've been thinking about constantly for about five years. <laughs> so I will share my thoughts with you. You are free to disagree with me, of course. Um, but I will share my thoughts with you, and, and hopefully I have something of value to say. Now, there are something like 220 or so direct citations of the Old Testament in the New Testament. So if you, read through the Old, if you read through the New Testament, something like 220 or so times, a New Testament author will directly quote the Old Testament. And almost every time when they do this, or just about every time, they are saying that something that happened, having to do with Christ, is a fulfillment of some Old Testament passage. So something that was written in the Old Testament hundreds of years before Christ came onto the scene, something that was written way back then was fulfilled in some way in Christ himself or else in the church and so on and so forth. So the New Testament, there's something interesting going on. The New Testament presents Christ and the church as a fulfillment of all these expectations and these hopes and so on that were present in the Old Testament. So Israel from 2,500 years ago, about 2,500 years ago, that's when the last you know, major Old Testament book was written. And there was a period of about 400 years where you know, nothing, at least in Scripture, was included from about those times. So 2,500 years ago, the last 
bit of scripture had been written. You know, 400 years later or so, 500 years later, Christ is born, and the apostles, the disciples of Christ were saying, all those things that the Moses wrote about, that the prophets were talking about, uh, that Abraham was looking forward to, all those things were fulfilled now in Christ. At the same time, some people are skeptical of the apostles' use of the Old Testament. Because as you'll see, in many cases, it's not a direct one-to-one, -one, you know, a clear prediction in the Old Testament and then a, a clear fulfillment in the New Testament. Sometimes something weird is going on. I will give you one example that is really, you know, a really common one that more skeptical scholars will point to. We know, according to the Gospel of Matthew, when Christ was a child, after he was born, they fled to Egypt because Herod was trying to kill uh, all the children under a certain age in that area because he wanted to kill the Christ. So the parents flee to Egypt. After Herod dies and the persecutions are over, they are sent back by an angel. Um, and according to the Gospel of Matthew, in uh, chapter, uh, chapter 2, beginning with verse 14, Joseph has a dream, uh, and this is what happens after the dream. So Joseph got up, he took the child and his mother during the night and left for Egypt, where they stayed until the death of Herod. And so was fulfilled what the Lord had said through the prophet. Here's a quotation. Out of Egypt I called my son. So this is what Matthew was saying. This is a passage in the Old Testament, out of Egypt I called my son. Now Matthew knew that when Christ was a baby, he went to Egypt and then came back in order to avoid you know, being killed by Herod. So Matthew says this happened in the life of Christ. He went to Egypt and then came back as a child in order to fulfill what the Old Testament prophet had written. Now this passage here, out of Egypt I called my son, is a citation from Hosea chapter 11. So let's open up to Hosea chapter 11, page 878 in these Bibles. So let's read what the prophet Hosea said in Hosea chapter 11, verses 1 and 2 we can say. This is what the prophet Hosea says. When Israel was a child, I loved him, and, then, and out of Egypt I called my son. But the more I called Israel, the further they went from me. They sacrificed to the balls, and they burned incense to images. So notice what is happening here. This is something very strange. The prophet Hosea is bringing a word of condemnation against the people of Israel. He is referring to the Exodus. God drew you people out of Egypt. Right? He took you out of Egypt, and he brought you into this land. But the more... The, the, the greater the kindness that God showed towards you, the more you worship idols and sacrifice to other gods. So when the prophet Hosea is saying, out of Egypt I called my son, he is referring to the Exodus. And the son of God in this case is the people of Israel, right? Who This nation group that God himself had formed and had brought out of Egypt in the Exodus. So Hosea seems to be talking about one thing. But Matthew says that what happened to Christ is a fulfillment of what Hosea wrote. It makes it sound as if Hosea was making a prediction. And when you read Hosea, there is no predicting, right? He is recounting the history of the people of Israel, and he is condemning them for it. Whereas in Matthew, the text seems to have an entirely different meaning. So very many skeptical scholars will point to this and say, look at this, all right? Yeah, it's true, the apostles cite from the Old Testament all the time. But a fair number of their citations make no sense, right? If they were careful readers of the Old Testament, they would say, they would clearly see that Hosea is not predicting anything here, right? Uh, how is it then that he can say that this happened in order to fulfill what the prophet had written? So there's a problem here. We have 
these skeptical scholars who will point to this discrepancy between what the Old Testament seems to be saying in context and what the New Testament authors are taking it to mean, and they'll say, listen, Christ did not fulfill some prophecy in Hosea about going back to Egypt or whatever. Some of them, who are even more skeptical, will say, uh, no, what happened is the earliest Christians were very passionate about Jesus and they wanted to convince their Jewish rivals about the Messiah, you know, the, the Messiahship or whatever of, of Jesus. And so they just went through the Old Testament and they took any passage that sounded like it could refer to him and said, oh, this was to fulfill, you know, such and such a passage. So basically this more skeptical solution says uh, the New Testament writers were quote mining, right, you know, so to speak, the Old Testament. They would just go in, whatever sounds good to a Christian ear, they would take that out and they would say, oh, this is just, this is Christ. Obviously it's talking about Christ. Even though if you were to read carefully in the original context, it has nothing to do with Christ. So here's a problem. This is a, a noted problem in, in Christian theology. The way that the New Testament authors seem to make use of the Old Testament is hard to reconcile with what we think are good you know, practices of interpretation, such as paying attention to context um, and you know, uh, interpreting in light of the intended meaning of the original author and so on. So what do we do? How do we solve this problem? How do we say that Christ how do we say that the Holy Spirit spoke by the prophets um, if the New Testament authors seem to be taking the Old Testament out of context and misquoting it and applying a meaning to it that the human author could never have meant? Well, this was the problem uh, that I was uh, thinking about as I was working on my dissertation, and this is the solution that I have. So I will, I will explain my solution to you, and if you find it convincing, you can take it. If you don't find it convincing, you can... You know, listen to somebody else, I suppose. But here's, here's what I say. And let me get a drink of coffee first. Throughout the history of the Christian religion, there have been certain important figures who claim that in, in, on various occasions God spoke to them. And God spoke to them very clearly about something in particular and about what they had to do. And if we pay close attention to what this experience looks like for these people, we'll see that we can make use of that, we can, we can say that something similar was happening for the Apostles. So I'll give you some examples. This is easier to understand if I give you concrete examples. Uh, how many of you know who Dietrich Bonhoeffer was? Have you heard that name before? Dietrich Bonhoeffer. Yeah, Dietrich Bonhoeffer was a, a German Lutheran uh, theologian and pastor who lived during the time of Nazi Germany. Okay. So he was involved in the underground church at that point. Um, he was involved in, you know, holding illegal seminaries and, and so on during Nazi Germany. Uh, and just as things are getting bad and the war is, is breaking out, he, moves to, he comes to America and he spends some time in New York and he's at uh, Union Theological Seminary in New York. Now, he doesn't feel good about having left Germany and having left his fellow Christians in Germany when things are tough in order to come to America. He doesn't feel good about that, but he thought that that would be the good thing to do. Every day as he's in America, he reads from Scripture and he journals. Uh, and there are two moments as he's reading from Scripture where it seems clear to him that God is telling him to do something. And I will explain those two moments. One of those days, he is reading a passage from the prophet Isaiah. And the prophet Isaiah says something along these lines, the one who believes will not flee. Now, he reads those words, and he can't help but to think that God is somehow condemning him for his act of fleeing Germany. 
just as things are getting very tough. Now, Baumhofer, you know, he was very well educated. He was educated in some of the best German theological schools. He knows, all right, Isaiah lived thousands of years ago. He doesn't know who Dietrich Baumhofer is. He's not talking about you. He's talking about his situation, his own people. You know, just like, for example, if somebody were to listen to these recordings 2,000 years from now, I am not talking to you, right, except right now. I'm talking about the people who are here, right? So Bonhoeffer knows this is not an appropriate way to read Isaiah. Isaiah is talking about his own people, his own context, his own things, thousands of years before. But nevertheless, he cannot shake the feeling, these words, the one who believes does not flee. He can't shake the feeling that somehow these words, even though they're being used in a sense that Isaiah could not have meant, God somehow is making use of Isaiah's words in order to address Bonhoeffer and to say something to him. And the next day, he reads also from Scripture, and he reads a passage in the second epistle to Timothy, where Paul is telling Timothy, you know, bring my books and bring, the, uh, bring my cloak and so on, and he says, do thy due diligence to come before the winter. And once more, Bonhoeffer has a similar experience. He hears these words, come before the winter, and he can't help but to think that somehow God is telling him to return to Germany as soon as possible. He knows that Paul was talking to Timothy. He knows that Paul has no idea who Dietrich Bonhoeffer is. He was not trained to just pick up the Bible at random and to find a sentence and to just take that as a message from God. That was not Bonhoeffer's training. So this was entirely out of character for him to read the Bible this way. But nevertheless, without him wanting to, he sat down in the morning and was reading, doing his morning devotionals, whatever it might have been, and this, it seemed as he was coming across this passage, come before the winter, God somehow was taking these words of Paul from 2,000 years ago and addressing them to Bonhoeffer specifically and saying, come before the winter, back to Germany. Bonhoeffer took it that God was telling him to return to Germany, all right? And if we pay close attention to his experience, um, we can discern something going on here. As he is reading the Bible, he comes across these words. Now these words somehow stick out to him, and they seem to be talking to him in particular. But at the same time, he knows this is not what the human author could have meant. This is not what Isaiah could have been talking about. This is not what Paul could have been talking about. And at the same time, this is not my normal way of reading the Bible. I do not sit down, open up the Bible, take a sentence, and then apply it right away to me. This is not how I normally do things. So somehow, there is a sentence being uttered here. There is, you know, come before the winter, or the one who believes that does not flee. There is some idea being communicated here by a, what I call in my dissertation a third voice. It is not Paul's voice, right, because Paul is not telling Bonhoeffer to do anything. It is not Isaiah's voice. Neither is it Bonhoeffer's voice, because it's, it's not that he is, you know, intentionally taking this text and applying it to himself. That's not what he's doing. Somehow, within this experience, there is a third voice making itself heard that makes use of the words of Paul or of Isaiah in order to tell Bonhoeffer to do something. Even though Bonhoeffer was not expecting it, he did not open up the Bible and just say, okay, the first thing I see, that's what I'm going to take and apply to myself. So there's a third voice that somehow makes itself heard in this experience. Now, my proposal in my dissertation, and uh, just in general, is that this is what it's like. This is what it would be like for God to speak to you. When you have a message that is not what anybody could have been saying to you, neither is it what you could have expected, and yet somehow it's there. You know, there's a, a, a third voice making itself heard, making use of human words to address you, even though you were not expecting it. 
You were not looking for it, it just happens to you. This is what it would be like if God were to address you. And this experience, interestingly enough, has happened to very many people throughout the time of uh, the church. So there was a man named Anthony who lived in the late 200s, all right, and he was one of the first, um, the first Christian monks. He goes to church one day, Athanasius tells us the story. Uh, Anthony goes to church one day, and he is thinking about how in the Acts of the Apostles it says that the Christians had all their you know, possessions in common and they were helping each other and so on. And he goes to church, and when he gets to church, the reading is from the Gospel according to Matthew, where Christ tells the rich person, sell everything you have and follow me. Now, there has never been in the history of Christianity the idea that Christians are not allowed to own private property. Right? So that has never been a widespread idea. We have hints of that in the Acts of the Apostles, but the precept, I mean, if you read Paul's letters, right, Paul has no notion that the property of his converts are, is not their own. He tells people to give generously of their own property to help, for example, the, the famine fund, uh, the famine in Jerusalem. So there's always been this idea that your property is your own. Right? When you become a Christian, you don't automatically sell all your property or you know, give everything up to the common fund. Uh, so there's always been the idea in the church that your property is your own, even if Christ may have told a particular person, sell everything that you have. But when Anthony goes to church that day, he hears those words, sell everything that you have, and he can't help but to feel somehow that even though this is not what Christ meant, even though Christ was not talking to Anthony, somehow God is telling him in particular, sell everything you have and retreat you know, into the desert and live the life of a monk. And that is how Anthony became a monk. He went to church, he heard this passage being read, um, and even though that is not what the passage means, even though nobody will tell you, you know, when Christ told the rich man to sell everything you have, he was telling everybody at all times to become a monk. That's not what the passage means. But nevertheless, like I was saying, this third voice makes itself felt to Anthony and speaks to him using the words from the gospel to say something particular to him. And there is also the case of Augustine. Augustine became a Christian, uh, and he was debating in his mind whether he should, you know, um, adopt a life of celibacy and become a, a, a priest in the church and a bishop, or if he should go on living, you know, his, his uh, loose lifestyle. Uh, you know, there's the, there's the story that Augustine used to pray to God, Lord, make me chaste, but not yet. Right, so we, we know what sort of a person he was when, you know, before, before uh, he was converted. So, uh, you know, Augustine has these, he tells this story in his book, The Confessions. And he's having these, these intense moments of, you know, conflict of conscience. He doesn't know what to do. He, he feels that the better thing to do would be to, you know, to, give, to take up a life of celibacy and to uh, take the role of a bishop in the church. But at the same time, he's weak and he doesn't want to give up his, his loose lifestyle. So he leaves, he's at his house. He hears, actually, somebody tells him the story of Anthony. You know, somebody tells him the story of how Anthony was converted and how he became a monk and how he heard the, you know, the words in the church and so on. Augustine feels miserable because he can't get himself to just commit to something. Um, and he runs outside the house and he falls under a tree and he just cries. And then he hears, you know, this voice, this hard to describe voice. He can't tell if it's a child or what, if it's a boy or a girl. And it says, tole lege. Tole lege in Latin means pick it up, read it. And the, ch the child says, tole lege, tole lege. And he, Augustine says to himself, I know there are, there are no child's you know, nursery rhymes or anything like that that have these words in them. I know that there are no rhymes that children would be saying. But somehow I heard these words and I knew that what I had to do was to go inside and to open up the Bible and to read the first thing that, that you know, my eyes, uh, you know, the first sentence that my eyes would fall upon and that would be God's answer to my question. 
And he knew this because he was just told about the experience of Anthony, how God had spoken to Anthony a very particular way through that passage in the Gospel. So Augustine goes back into the house, he opens up uh, the Bible, and he reads this passage from Romans chapter 13. Let's see. Yeah, Romans chapter 13, verses, starting with verse 12. The night is nearly over, the day is almost here. So let us put aside the deeds of darkness and put on the armor of light. Let us behave decently as in the daytime, not in orgies and drunkenness, not in sexual immorality and debauchery, not in dissension and jealousy. Rather, clothe yourselves with the Lord Jesus Christ and do not think about how to gratify the desires of the sinful nature. So he's crying because out of just frustration with himself, he cannot commit to a life of celibacy in the church. He hears this song, this strange song, Tole Lege, pick it up, read it. He goes back in the house, he opens up his scrolls, this is the first thing he comes across, and he says, he retells in his confessions, my mind was made up, the decision was made for me, it was clear to me now, I have to take up the life of celibacy in the church. Now let me ask you a question, when Paul wrote those words, was he commanding everybody to take up a life of celibacy and to be a bishop in the church? Oh, is there a long distance between, you know, the celibate life of a bishop and not living in debauchery and, and drunkenness, right? There's a, lot of, there's a lot of room, right? Just because you're married and you have children doesn't mean that you, you know, live in a life of debauchery and, and drunkenness. So, what Augustine understands is not exactly what Paul is saying. And yet somehow, God made use of these words in order to address Augustine's very particular situation and to communicate something to him and to confirm in his mind something that he had to do. So we have these experiences, and you know, there was a, um, a conference at my school, I think it was the year before I got there, and one of the speakers at the conference himself recounted an experience like this, where he had been you know, thinking about a problem constantly, and he didn't know how to do it, and he went to church one day, and the passage from the, the reading just stuck out to him and seemed to speak exactly to what he was thinking about. So my suggestion in my dissertation and there would be a lot more to say here, obviously. I don't think, for example, these experiences are something you should go out and seek. Because if you are looking for it, that takes away from its, you know, authenticity. If you're looking, if you just open up the Bible and take whatever sentence you want and apply it to yourself, you know, that could be something that comes from you, right? And everything that is real and authentic doesn't come from you. It just appears. It's just given to you. So I don't say that this is a way you should pick up the Bible and read it and find a solution to every one of your problems. I don't say that. But there are numerous testimonies in the history of the church to people, you know, attesting. This is how God spoke to me on one occasion. I went to the church, I heard the gospel reading, and I just knew I had to sell everything and to retreat into the desert. Or I was doing my morning devotionals one day, and Paul said, come before the winter, and I, I can't tell you how. I normally don't read the Bible this way. I know you're not supposed to read the Bible this way. I wasn't looking for it, but somehow I knew I had to go back to Germany, because God was telling me somehow through the words of Paul, in a sense that Paul himself could not have meant, in a sense that I myself was not looking for, he told me, go back to Germany. Now, my suggestion for you is that this is what happened to the apostles. When they were following Christ around from place to place, Christ would do something, or they would learn something about Christ, and in their mind, they would suddenly remember a passage from Scripture. And even though if you were to read the Old Testament passage in question, it has nothing to do with Jesus and it doesn't predict anything, nevertheless, it was like something happened to them, and it, you know, a, a light turned on, and they recognized, oh, 
and I'll give you an example. We can read in John chapter 2. John chapter 2 recounts the story of the cleansing of the temple. So Jesus goes to the temple, uh, he creates a whip of cords, he kicks everybody out, he says, you've turned my father's house into a, a den of robbers. So let's read John chapter 2 from verse 15. So Jesus made a whip out of cords and drove all from the temple area, both sheep and cattle. He scattered the coins of the money changers and overturned their tables. To those who sold doves, he said, Get these out of here. How dare you turn my father's house into a market? His disciples remembered that it was written, Zeal for your house will consume me. So notice what is happening here. If you find that passage, that is in Psalm 69, verse 9, Zeal for your house will consume me. If you read the psalm, it is about somebody who has made himself a lot of enemies. He's been trying to follow God and to be righteous. In the meantime, his enemies have just increased. And the psalm does not say, zeal for your house will consume me. It is zeal for your house that has consumed me. You know, and he, the, 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 the psalmist is not making a prediction. He is not saying, oh, when the Messiah comes, he will be consumed with zeal for the house of the Lord or anything like that. The psalmist is talking about himself. And yet somehow, the apostles following around Christ, they saw what he was doing and this verse came into their mind. Uh, zeal for your house will consume me. So my suggestion is that when the apostles were following Christ, they would have experiences like these, where a passage would seem to speak directly about what is happening to them right now. It would seem to point to what is happening in Christ. Uh, even though that is not what the Old Testament author meant, that's not what the Old Testament author was talking about, and even though the, the, the disciples themselves were not looking for it, it's not as if they were picking up, you know, they carried their scrolls of Isaiah and Moses with them everywhere they went, and every time Jesus was doing something, they would check the scrolls to see if... That wasn't happening. It was spontaneous. They would follow Christ, and a light would turn on in their heads. Right? They remembered all these readings from when they would go to synagogue Saturday after Saturday. And as Christ would do various things, the light would turn on in their heads and it would be like God would speak to them. This is what the prophet was talking about. Remember those words that the prophet uttered? Look, here is the fulfillment. So, this is my proposal for you. This is, this is my suggestion. How does the Old Testament fit within you? Now, I should say this. Not every Old Testament citation is like this. There are some Old Testament passages which seem straightforwardly to predict some future person who will arrive in the future um, and will do such and such a thing. So there are plenty of instances in the, in the Old Testament. For example, Isaiah chapter 53, with the servant of Israel who, the, you know, who suffers, he uh, was wounded for our transgressions, and so on and so forth. There are plenty of passages in the Old Testament that seem to predict a future figure. And there, the prediction does come true. But there are also instances where the, the apostles will say that something that happened to Christ is a fulfillment of this or that prophet. Um, but when you read this or that prophet, he doesn't seem to be predicting anything. So how can you fulfill something that's not a prediction? Well, my suggestion is that this is how the Holy Spirit spoke through the prophets. The disciples would follow around Christ, and they would see something that Christ did, does, or something that he says, or something that happens to him. And they would remember passages from the prophets, remember passages from the Old Testament. And somehow it would be like God is speaking through those passages about Christ. So just like Bonhoeffer would read Paul. And God used those words of Paul addressed to Timothy in order to say something to Bonhoeffer. Uh, so also something like that happens in the case of the apostles, I say. Not in every case exactly, but in, in, in enough cases. Um, they would 
follow Christ around, they would learn something about Christ's life. For example, when Matthew learned that Christ as a child went to Egypt and then came back. Probably what happened is, God used those words of the prophet Hosea, out of Egypt I called my son, and used them in a sense that Hosea did not intend, in a sense that he could not have predicted, in order to say something about Christ. Christ is the Son of God, and he was called back out of Egypt when he was a child. So this is the, uh, a way in which um, the Holy Spirit spoke by the prophets. So this is the first part of what I wanted to talk about. Now the next part I'll have to move much more quickly, because this part is very abstract, it's philosophical, it's a bit difficult. Uh, this is my proposal for you. How is it that the Holy Spirit speaks through the prophets? Well, I think that the, and I think that the example from the Gospel of John more or less proves it, the disciples had experiences like these, where they would see something happening to Christ, or they would see Christ doing something, and they would remember a passage in the Old Testament, and it would seem to say something new now. It would say something more than what it meant to them before then. It would say something more than what they could have anticipated had Christ not come, or before Christ had come. Uh, so this is a way in which the Holy Spirit speaks through the prophets. Now I want to address this second question. What is the role of Scripture in the Church? This is a hotly debated issue since the time of the Reformation. Um, it's a point of controversy between, for example, Protestants, Anglicans, Roman Catholics, Eastern Orthodox, uh, how do we think about Scripture and the tradition of the Church? How do, we script, how do we think about Scripture and, you know, what we do every Sunday or what we preach every Sunday? Um, once more, I will give you my opinion, right? I, I want to, you know, everything that I say should come with a disclaimer. This is just my opinion. I have no authority to teach you except for the fact that Canadar gave me this opportunity. So, I have no authority to teach you. I, you, you don't have to listen to anything that I say. You don't have to believe anything I say, really. I'm just a person talking. Um, but if you find what I say valuable, then I'm thankful to God for that. Um, here's my question. What is the relationship between Scripture and tradition? In the time of the Reformation, this was a major controversy. Very many Roman Catholic theologians, for example, said that Scripture by itself is not enough. You need the tradition of, you know, Holy Mother Church in order to complement the lack of Scripture. So not everything, for example, that is required for salvation is clearly set out in Scripture. Some things you need the tradition of the church for. What are those things? Uh, well, for example, here's an example I will give. Uh, in Roman Catholicism uh, and in Eastern Orthodoxy, there is a tradition of icon veneration. Right? When you enter into an, uh, an Eastern Orthodox church, you are not Orthodox unless you make the sign of the cross and you bow before the icons and you kiss the icons, let's say, on their shoulders or perhaps on their hands and so on. Um, and this is a part of the worship. Now, why do they venerate the icons? There was a controversy about this in the 700s. Parts of the church were saying, no, the use of images in church is inappropriate. Parts of the church were saying, no, it is appropriate. Um, and in the, seventh, uh, in the 700s, they had the, what is, you know, the Second Council of Nicaea. We were talking about the First Council of Nicaea with the Nicene Creed. They had the Second Council of Nicaea. And they decided that it is appropriate, not only that it's appropriate, but it's necessary that images be used in the worship of all the churches. Uh, for example, one of, the, one of the rules in the, you know, during that time, one of the parties at that time said, we should not have an image of Christ on the cross in church. We should only have a bare cross. The cross should be empty. It should be a reminder of Christ's crucifixion, but we should not have Christ on the cross there, right? Because we should not depict an image of Christ's suffering. 
Whereas the other, you know, if you go to any Roman Catholic church or any Eastern Orthodox church, you will see depictions of Christ on the cross. You won't see just the bare cross as we have in our own church. So this is a point of controversy. And at the council, they decided, no, you must have icons in your church. You must venerate your icons as a part of the practice of worship. Uh, and if you don't do this, you're anathema. So they decided heartily, you know, these things are absolutely necessary. Now, if you go looking through the New Testament, you will never find a commandment of Christ where he says, oh, and by the way, when you gather together with your brethren, uh, you should have, you know, holy images of the saints on the walls adorning the, the church. And when you enter, you should make the sign of the cross and you should go from the right to the left and not from the left to the right and you should kiss the shoulder of the person in the icon and so on. There is no commandment of Christ like that, right? But nevertheless, in Eastern Orthodoxy and Roman Catholicism, these things are considered necessary. It's a part of ordinary Christian practice. And if you don't do these things, it's deficient. Something is wrong. Well, in the Anglican uh, tradition, for example, if you read the 39 Articles, the 39 Articles teaches in Article 6 that Scripture containeth all things necessary unto salvation, so that whatever is not clearly stated in Scripture or can be proved from Scripture cannot be required of anybody. So in Anglicanism, in the 39 Articles, we see that not that the tradition of the church is all bad and you should throw it all away, but that nothing that Scripture obliges a person to do. If Scripture does not oblige a person to do this for salvation, neither can you oblige a person to do this for salvation on the basis of some tradition. Um, so, for example, we have icons in our church, and anybody who wants to is free to uh, venerate the icons. But as far as I'm concerned, and you can correct me if I'm wrong, Canandar, there is no obligation to. Canada will never tell you, unless you make the sign of the cross and kiss, you know, the icon of the Holy Mother, you are going to help. They'll never tell you that, because Scripture doesn't teach us that. But it's a practice that you're free to engage in. Um, so, Anglicanism always tries to go between the extremes. It tries to be between the extreme of uh, Roman Catholicism, with its uh, basically putting Scripture and tradition on, the, on a par, and certain forms of Protestantism that just throw away tradition for no reason. Right, just because not everything that the tradition says can be proved in Scripture. So we see Anglicanism sees the Church as uh, bearing witness and testimony to Scripture. The Church is here to proclaim the things that are in Scripture. Now it also has traditions, and the, the 39 Articles teach that the Church has authority for establishing practices and ceremonies and, and authorities and matters of doctrine. But the Church does not add to Scripture. The Church cannot create new dogma that are not found in Scripture. Neither can the Church uh, say anything contrary to Scripture. And the 39 Articles is also very clear. You, the Church should not interpret Scripture in such a way that it ends up contradicting itself. So what the, the Church says about a certain passage of Scripture, about a certain idea in Scripture, cannot contradict something else that Scripture says. So we can see here how the Church is always trying to just clarify Scripture. Scripture is the canon. Scripture is the measure, the, the rule. And the Church's role is just to communicate what Scripture says and to interpret Scripture faithfully. Um, not, you know, making rules where Scripture doesn't make any, um, or I should say rather not establishing, you know, necessities and obligations where there are none in Scripture, but at the same time uh, maintaining its own authority for, you know, um, establishing a proper order and, and so on. There are nuances here, but this is the, the Anglican idea, that Scripture contains all the things that are necessary for salvation so that you cannot oblige a person to do anything that Scripture does not also oblige a person to do. And I think that this is closer to the actual ideas of Jesus about these things. This idea, the relationship between Scripture and tradition, was a controversy in the time of Christ. And we see, for example, that Christ in various places 
condemns the scribes and the Pharisees because they prefer their human traditions rather than the Word of God. This, for example, happens in Mark chapter 7 and Matthew chapter 15, the tradition about washing your hands. The Pharisees say to Christ, why don't your disciples wash their hands? You know, why don't they follow the tradition of the elders? Christ says back to them, Christ sometimes was pretty, uh, pretty sharp, he was, he was pretty snarky at times. Why do you guys prefer your traditions to the Word of God? Right? Because you say, according to your tradition, well, you know, if a, if a, if a young man declares some number of his, some, some, you know, some winnings of his, some money of his, korban, he can dedicate it to God, he can donate it to the temple, that means he doesn't have to help his parents with it. But the commandment is clear. Honor your father and your mother. Why do you disobey the word of God out of deference for your tradition? And he says, you do many things like this. And when you read Matthew chapter 23, here's another very fascinating passage. Matthew chapter 23, um, Christ tells his disciples, the scribes and the Pharisees sit on Moses' seat. Therefore do whatever they tell you, but don't do as they do, because they don't practice what they preach. Now, at first glance, it sounds like um, Christ is saying, the Pharisees have a, you know, they sit in an appropriate seat of authority, you should obey absolutely everything that they teach you, their authorities, you must listen to them. My, this is a contested issue, interpreters differ. My interpretation is that Christ is being slightly ironic. Uh, because, of course, until this point in the Gospel according to Matthew, Christ disobeys the Pharisees a number of times. He lets his disciples eat plucked grains from the field. He doesn't wash his hands. Uh, in the Gospel according to John, for example, he's extremely sharp. He says, you don't know your father, you don't know Moses. If you knew Moses, you would believe in me because Moses wrote about me. You're trying to kill me because you don't know me or my father. So in very many places, Christ comes in, he, you know, he comes in uh, heavy against the Pharisees and he says they don't understand God, they prefer their human traditions, they don't know what God is about, they don't understand, for example, what a simple passage of scripture, I desire mercy and not sacrifice. He says, before you start condemning me for breaking your traditions, go and, under, go and read this passage, I desire mercy and not sacrifice. So Christ everywhere condemns the Pharisees because they just miss the point. They think all these things are important and Christ says, no, you've understood you, you don't even understand the basic aspects of the law. Mercy, justice, kindness. So, Christ himself thought that the word of God is more important than the traditions of human beings. It's true, for 5,000 years from the days of Moses, you know, we have this long succession of rabbis, and each one has taught this, and what the rabbis bind, and so on. Uh, all of that may be true, but Christ seems to say, you can have 5,000 years worth of tradition. But if you contradict the Word of God, it's good for nothing. Your tradition does not outweigh God's Word. Rather, what you should be trying to do is to preserve God's Word and to communicate it and to teach it to people. Um, but where God you know, doesn't bind, you should not bind. And where God doesn't loose, you should not loose. So, this, I think, this, this Anglican way of understanding the central authority of Scripture and understanding the, the finality, the priority of Scripture, uh, for the teaching of the church, I think, is closer to the way that Christ himself actually taught. Uh, Christ thought that the, God's word valued more than all the human traditions and all the rabbis and all the history of interpretation of the Pharisees. Um, that doesn't mean, for example, that all traditions are bad. We have very many traditions in our church that we keep, and they're good. Why do we, for example, have communion every Sunday instead of once, you know, every three or four months like they do in, in some churches? Uh, why, for example, do we have the church structured in a certain way? Why do we have a cross in the front? Why do we kneel at certain points? These are traditions. These are things that people have decided to do at a certain point, and they're good. They form us. They train us. There's nothing wrong with them. Um, 
But just because something is a tradition, it doesn't mean it's good. Likewise, just because something is a tradition, doesn't mean that it's bad. Um, tradition gives us the gospel. We learn about the gospel from other people, but tradition also forms us, and it helps us to take this truth that has been revealed uh, through the prophets and the apostles and to let this truth form us in various ways. Um, so these are my uh, ideas for today. How did the Holy Spirit spoke, speak through the prophets in the way that I described? Just like, for example, Bonhoeffer, Augustine, Anthony, and others. How does scripture relate to tradition in the church? Uh, the tradition's goal is always to communicate scripture to people. Scripture has ultimate authority in the church. Uh, the church expounds scripture to its people and it uh, teaches scripture, but it doesn't make rules where scripture doesn't make rules. It doesn't uh, say you must do this where scripture doesn't say that. Um, and likewise, the, tr the tradition or the church should not say you don't have to do this where scripture says that you do.